All right, Matthew chapter 6. 12 weeks from now, I'm going to say Matthew 6. It's just going to open up. All the time we're going to spend in this passage in Jesus' own school of prayer on Sunday mornings, but then also in life groups. We're going to be in this passage, and we're praying that as we take this journey, we'll be transformed. We'll become really people of prayer. Not because we've learned some new technique, or we figure out how to get God to give us what we want. One of C.S. Lewis quotes, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. That's what we're going to see as we come to understand the Lord's Prayer. It's about a transformational relationship. And as we're changed, the world around us is changed. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading again at verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you have the same version of the New International that I have, that last phrase doesn't appear in your primary text. How many of you found that to be the case? For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. It's in the older translations. The reason why it's pulled out is because it doesn't consistently appear in our earliest manuscripts. And so to be honest with that, the translators put it down in the bottom. You actually do see it. There's an asterisk. I think it's important that we take the whole because there's some really important things about that last segment when we get to it. I think as we begin this week to dig into the prayer itself, It's, again, very important to look at how Jesus introduces it. He doesn't say, this then is what you should pray. He says, this is how you should pray. He's teaching us what prayer is. How interesting, as we saw last week, that we've turned this prayer into what the pagans do that Jesus said don't do. Constant repetition. It's not meant to in itself have powers by means of incantation. It's a model for what prayer is to be. Now, there's certainly value in saying it, isn't it? But inasmuch as it is changing us and teaching us, reminding us what our communication with God is, then it's fulfilling the purpose for which Jesus gave it. Now, what I want to do today is give you an overview of the next six sermons by showing you how we're gonna break down the Lord's Prayer to understand what prayer is. The first thing that we see is that prayer is relationship. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Our Father in heaven. Second, to understand prayer is to see it as commitment. 
to God above everything. Your name, your kingdom, your will is what we're first and foremost about. We come to God backwards, don't we? Really, we want our will. The third thing that we see is that prayer is reliance. Last week, when we looked at the introduction, we saw that Jesus said, your heavenly Father already knows what you need before you ask. And we asked the question, if God already knows, then why ask? There's very clearly four things here that Jesus said ought to be part of our praying. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. And what we're going to see when we get to that in more detail is that it's really a a confession of reliance on God that then opens ourselves for God to meet the needs in our lives that he already knows are there. He just wants to know that we know that he's the one that's supposed to meet those needs. The fourth thing we see is that prayer is surrender. Ultimately, Father, Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Prayer is ultimately a surrender to God's purposes and God's will in our lives. And then finally, prayer is agreement. And that's found in that simple little phrase, forever, amen. And believe it or not, that's just not the same as the send key on your email. (laughs) Amen isn't just saying, I'm done. Go ahead, prayer. Go to heaven. Every word in this prayer is important. You have to not see the opening, which we're going to look at in just a moment, our Father in heaven, and the amen as the way you write a formal letter, like our Father in heaven is the equivalent to, to whom it may concern. (laughs) How do we begin most of our prayers? Dear Jesus, dear Lord, right? Just introductory. And then we end it, most sincerely yours, or, or how do you sign your notes? Anybody? XOXO. Oh, that's good. Love you, Jesus. XOXO. Amen. Get going. Let's look at this opening part, our Father in heaven, and understand why the very first thing about Jesus' idea of prayer is that it's about relationship. Now, here's what I want you to understand these are not just the first words of the prayer. If you were a listener to Jesus' teaching in his day, you would really understand that they're not just the first, they are the foremost words in this prayer. Because they represent the singular radical shift in prayer that is being made possible by the advent and the sacrificial and redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything about prayer as Jesus was going to teach it grows out of this concept. And believe me, in its day, it was scandalous. We're so used to these words, we just don't understand it. In that day, to speak about God, let alone to God with such familiarity, was a complete scandal. There's three words. The first is our, and what we learn by that is that, because it's about relationship, Prayer is community. This prayer is given to us in plural. Our Father, give us, lead us, right? Now, last week we looked at Jesus' exhortation that public prayer life is meaningless if you don't have a personal, intimate prayer life with the Father. Go into your closet. But prayer is not exclusively that. Prayer is community. We are to be the people of God 
before the throne of God. We pray together. We pray for one another. We pray with one another. Imagine what it would look like if Journey didn't talk about the importance of prayer, but people walked in and realized this is a people of God who don't just have individuals who know what it means to come boldly before the throne of God, but these people together come before the throne of God. Prayer is about agreement with one another. Doesn't scripture teach that? What we agree to on earth, God responds to, that's all about community. There's an important aspect to community here that we might miss, and that's that Jesus is saying our and us. So another thing we understand about community is that it is very much rooted in our relationship with Jesus. The only reason we can call him Father is because Jesus calls us his brother and his sister. We've been adopted into the family of God. Jesus is the one that makes this prayer possible because he's in relationship with us. It's a powerful thought, right? He's our mediator, but he's also our brother. The firstborn from among the dead, Scripture calls him. It's community. And the second is father, and that means prayer is about family. We're going to come back to that. So the third area is this phrase, in heaven. In heaven isn't just location. That's about authority. When we speak to our heavenly Father, we're speaking to the one who is at the throne of the universe. We have access to the place of absolute authority and power and provision. When we think of heaven, what we're saying is our prayers go directly to the seat of the king and ruler and majesty of the universe who we happen to call dad. It's pretty awesome. I was thinking about how um, my kids thought I was super dad when I was younger. It's a cool period when your kids think that you're stronger than anybody else and you're smarter than anybody else and you can beat anybody up. But you know the time will come where they get older. They know you've got weaknesses, and the best thing you can do, dads, is not pretend about that, but let them discover the real you because that's the one that God loves, and that's the one that will actually show them the path to God, not the super dad, but the real dad. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not the case with our Heavenly Father. Fact is, the more you get to know your Heavenly Father, the more powerful, the more majestic the more magnificent he is. He gets better and better and stronger and stronger. And when Jesus says, that's the Father we talk to, the one in heaven, that ought to give us gratitude that we can talk to him, but ought to give us an incredible sense of significance that he allows us access to him in that way. Right? Let's ponder another aspect in terms of this idea of, of in heaven. We love the concept of the incarnation, and it's a very important doctrine. God took on human form, dwelt a while among us in Jesus. What makes us feel that we can relate to God is that he has become one of us. He has struggled. He has been tempted in every way that we have been tempted. The scripture says we are not without a God who is sympathetic. He's experienced the very things we've experienced. That's what helps us feel close to God, but the opposite is true, too. Not only did God condescend to us, God elevates us as his children to be worthy of his throne room. 
prayer takes us into that throne room. Every time we cry out, our Father, who is in heaven, we're there. We are there with him. Mm. Thanks, Noel. I think I will. Let's now look at the most important piece. If those are the, the minor points, what's the big point? The big point is this idea of Father. See, what set Jesus' prayer apart was its familiarity. Jesus was inviting them to relate to God the same way Jesus is the Son of God related to his Father. He was inviting them to learn to see God and relate to him in a completely different way. I think you, you can only really understand how scandalous that is to understand what prayer was to the Hebrew people in the Old Testament and in the time of Christ. And I'm only gonna focus on two things to help you understand it. The first is the name of God as the Jewish people related to it. And then the second is the nature of the tabernacle and the temple. Let's talk about the name of God. You see, the name of God to the Jewish people was so sacred. Today, even though people debate about whether we say Yahweh or Jehovah, the simple truth is we don't know how to pronounce God's name because it was never to be spoken. In the Old Testament, all that we have when they come to the true name of God are four consonants. In English, Y-H-W-H. In Hebrew, yod Hey vav Hey. It is so sacred, God is so other, we don't speak his name. And so when they came in their scriptures to a place where Yahweh was written, they wouldn't say it. Still today, many congregations instead insert the name Adonai, which means Lord. Did you ever notice in the Old Testament that sometimes Lord is all uppercase, and then sometimes it's uppercase L and then lowercase O-R-D? When you see it in all uppercase, that's Yahweh. When you see it with lowercase, that's Adonai. When you see Lord God Almighty, that's both of those words together. Wherever you see God in the Old Testament, that's the designation Elohim. Now, we do great studies on the various names of God, El Shaddai. Many of them come off of the term Elohim. Those are experiential names for God. But God has a name. And the Jewish people found it so sacred, they never said it except once a year. Once a year, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies. And there he would say it. But as far as we understand, not wanting anyone to hear him outside. He just breathed out the consonants. It might be something like this. Yo, hey, wah, hey. Once a year. God's name. God is completely other. He who is to be honored, whose name is not to be spoken. That's the God to which we pray. That's the God who is seated above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And it takes us to the second idea that helps us understand prayer for the Hebrew people. And that's the veil in the temple. When we went through the Old Testament, we spent several weeks looking at the temple and the law. But I'd like to take time again today because I think it's one of the most powerful analogies that God gave the children of Israel to understand the gospel and what the work of Christ would bring about. The veil was meant to be a dividing point between 
not the people of God, they couldn't get close, but between the priests who represented the people and God. The actual closed-in area of the temple had two primary areas, the holy place into which the priests would go daily performing certain acts. There were so many priests that if you were lucky, you got to do that once. Most priests didn't even have that opportunity. It was a lottery system. That holy place was sacred, but it wasn't as sacred as the next place. That was the Holy of Holies. And what divided the holy place from the Holy of Holies was a veil. It was so thick that it was virtually a wall of cloth. Embroidered from the outside were two cherubim. Now, cherubim are not cherubs. We're not talking about those chubby little things with wings and a bow who show up on Valentine's Day. They're no place in the Bible. Cherubim were warrior-class angels. Even other angels feared the cherubim. The cherubim were those angelic beings who were put at the entrance to the garden to keep Adam and Eve and their descendants from coming back into the garden. The garden represents for us the ideal relationship for which we were created, a place where in our innocence we walked with God. Intimate relationship. Sin broke that, and so it forced our race out of the garden but it was the intimate relationship with God that we really lost. And in the same way, the cherubim kept onlookers from entering into that garden again. The cherubim in the temple said, you cannot pass. There were those who were intimate with God in the Old Testament. Moses, David, man after God's own heart, Enoch, who walked with God. It's this little thing in the records of generations where it describes Enoch, and it says, Enoch was a man who walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Could you imagine, even in those days, transcending that barrier, that your relationship with God was so close that there was nothing more you could do to get closer to God on this side of heaven, and the next step was eternity. Just imagine that, Enoch walking with God and saying, so God, what's next? And God's saying, hey, why don't you come home to my place? Enoch walked with God, he was not. God took him. Those were the exceptions in the Old Testament. The vast assembly of Israel stood on the outside looking in, represented by a singular representative who once a year past the veil with blood and quietly and carefully whispered the name of God. It was this structure that created the idea of what it meant to approach and to speak to God. So imagine now what it was like for them to see Jesus go off on his own and have this relationship with God. Did Jesus radiate from his time with God? Was there something about what they saw that they realized there's something here that has nothing to do with any of that? I want that. Lord, teach us to pray. And now picture how unbelievable it was for them to hear him say, the first thing you have to get about prayer This is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
Jesus was saying, the rules are changing. And access to the throne of God, forget the Holy of Holies, the throne of God, our Father who is in heaven, we have access to that, and that's possible because I have come. Jesus was saying, everything is changing. And for many, it was a scandal that they could not get past, and it pushed them to crucify him as a heretic, all part of God's plan of redeeming the world. It's an amazing thought that we in Jesus can become children of God. So how did he accomplish it? How did that transition happen? Well, the story pushes forward. Jesus comes and he teaches, and we're enjoying some of that powerful teaching right now, but ultimately he came for the purpose of being the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. All those lambs, the writer of Hebrews says, all those sacrifices, millions of them, over all those generations in the tabernacle and in the temple, were a mere foreshadowing, pointing to a greater sacrifice. And when John the Baptist, the forerunner, said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He was saying, everything that you've experienced as a people up until this point comes to this moment, this Lamb of God, who will not just take away the sins this year or of this moment, but he will take away the sins of the whole world. Jesus came, submitted himself to the judgment of man and allowed himself to be impaled to a cross where he was suspended between heaven and earth. When he said, if you lift me up, I will draw all men to myself. And scripture records that when he finished that sacrifice, and he gave up the spirit, when he finished being the Lamb of God, letting his blood be shed for the sins of the world, the Bible says that veil that had existed for generation upon generation was torn from the top to the bottom as though God reached out of heaven and said, we just don't need this anymore because the way has been made. So now we, being new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, have been reconciled to God. The relationship that was broken is restored. The writer of Hebrews says, the priest went in fearfully, but we come boldly into the Holy of Holies by a new and living way made possible through the body of Christ, which was torn, which was the true veil. And all that boils down to this simple little thing. As powerful as that is to Jesus, that relationship was everyday stuff. And what he made possible through that redemption was that very same relationship could be everyday stuff for you and me. So we can say, Potter, Father, in heaven. And we can come boldly. So you know what that means? That means that Enoch, who walked with God and was not for God, took him. In the New Testament, would just fit right into the church. Because all of us are allowed to have that intimacy. It ought to be said and be true of all of us. That person walked with God. Look with me, just quickly, at Galatians chapter three. Verse 26 and following. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. 
Now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, who knows what that means, Papa, Daddy, it's the most intimate expression. Abba, and then he says, Father, what Greek word do you think that is? It's pater, the same word in the Lord's Prayer. So again, invoking this incredible sense of intimacy. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Papa, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, women here, note that I used very masculine terms there. We're sons of God, and there's that old boys club thing showing up in the Bible again. Some of you may have a translation that paraphrases it and actually says we're all children of God. How many of you actually have that in your text? Okay, now, this is a great example. We're messing with it, paraphrasing it so it becomes more politically acceptable, actually takes away the power of it. Paul is doing something really powerful here. Jesus didn't liberate women, and Paul put them back in the kitchen, as a lot of social liberals wanted to say. It. Paul was as much a radical revolutionary when he came to women as Jesus was, because he understood that Christ had restored the old order. In the same way Adam and Eve were partners in the garden, sin is what put the struggle between the sexes in place. Christ restored the old order. There's a reason why Paul says, you are all sons of God. It's a word game. Listen to what he's saying. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, that's why there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free. What's it say next? Male or female. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, in the tradition of that day, only the sons were heirs. Paul is turning that on his head by saying, okay, if that's true, you're all sons. What he's saying is the old order has changed. That liberates us out of a broken and archaic concept of the sexes that was a result of the fall, not the creation. What I want you to see here is that we are, all, we are all heirs. We all have this access to the throne of God. Let's just say these verses. John 1.12, say it with me. To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And then 1 John 3, let's say this. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Say this last with meaning. 
And that is what we are. Oh, yes. Abba, Potter in heaven. How incredible that in this space, through the work of Jesus, as our Savior, but also as our brother, we've been adopted into the body. We can come and are right now in the throne room of heaven with the one who is in charge and is in control of everything and calls us his child. Father, what confidence that gives us. Forgive us for thinking prayer is a way of saying all the right words to somehow get God to do something when really we just come to you as dad. (laughs) It's amazingly profound and in some ways inconceivable But in other ways, it's just that simple, Father. Break us of our sense that we are not worthy. Christ has made us worthy. Let us come boldly. Amen.